0: Even if Austria no longer commands an empire, its capital, Vienna, is still magnificent, and it comes in a convenient package.
1: Everything is very close together in Vienna. I think that's what distinguishes it the most from Paris or London, that within 20
0: minutes, you're everywhere. Bosnia may be a bit of a diamond in the rough, but it's the little things of everyday life that just might win you over.
2: We like to invest a lot of our time in this little ritual called coffee. You can sit over coffee for two hours.
0: In just a bit, guides from Austria and Bosnia-Herzegovina get us ready to enjoy their home turf. Or see for yourself how the sophisticated architectural tricks of the ancient Greeks can still amaze us today on the Acropolis in Athens.
3: It makes the Parthenon look bigger. It makes it look like it's moving, like it's breathing.
0: From Austria and Bosnia to the high point of the ancient Greeks. Come along for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. 2,500 years ago, as the citizens of Athens were developing how to make the idea of one-man, one-vote work, they also built magnificent temples on a rocky hill overlooking the city. A guide from Athens gets us ready to explore the Acropolis and look beyond the ruins a little later in the hour. And we'll hear what Bosnia offers as a visitor destination where the lessons learned for living together in a pluralistic society show some recent scars. But first, let's go to Vienna. When you think of the grandest capitals of Europe, Paris and Madrid may spring to mind. But if you like visiting elegant palaces, attending cultural events and art galleries, and enjoying live music, Vienna is hard to beat. The home of the Habsburgs, Vienna is just jam-packed with Baroque beauty. To learn more about Vienna, we're joined by Andrea Wolf. She's a guide from Austria who's been taking groups around Vienna for the last decade, and she's right here in our studio. Andrea, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Andrea, when we think about the great European capitals, Paris, Madrid, Berlin, London, it often comes with a royal family. In Vienna, maybe as much as any other city, the royal family really shaped the city. How, How do the Habsburgs tie in with the whole story of Vienna?
1: Vienna is unthinkable without the family of the Habsburgs because they were ruling from Vienna for over 640 years, and the empire was, we shouldn't forget, much larger than today's Austria,
0: yeah, because today, really, uh, it's just a hub of a vast multinational empire. How, how big was the Habsburg Empire at its Habsburg peak? The
1: Habsburg Empire was, if you compare it, was the size of Texas. Mm-hmm. And now we are like 10% of that, what we used to be.
0: I would say it's, you know, if you start and end a world war, like 1914 to 1918, you end up with just a little bit of your country left. And today, Vienna is a lot like a, a grand capital ruling a little country.
1: That's true. So 1918, everything changed. Austria lost even access to its own beaches. So Austria now is landlocked. But Vienna lost its purpose because it was the capital of this grand empire which didn't exist anymore.
0: But the Vienna we experience today has the echoes of that time. That's right. And, and it was an empire that had many cultures and they overlapped. How can we appreciate the the melting pot dimension of Vienna when we're there?
1: Well, in the museums, you see the influence of all the important painters or musicians or the writers, the scientists, Vienna was the place to be in the early 1900s because so much was going on there.
0: And it includes food.
1: Also food, of course. It's
0: kind of where uh, the East meets West in food.
1: It's a total melting pot, culture-wise, food-wise, even the languages kind of melted in Vienna. So it was um, where everybody met and uh, where important people went
0: to. The Congress of Vienna. I mean, after Napoleon, they sorted out Europe and they had the big Congress in Vienna, didn't That's they? right.
1: That was even in- earlier, though. Uh-huh. So, But it was important. It's important nowadays because Austria is neutral and that's where the big uh, UN agencies meet, uh, on neutral ground.
0: And uh, it, Austria was sort of in a middle zone there after World War II, wasn't it? Almost ended up in the Warsaw Pact. Group.
1: That's right. So Austria, uh, uh, luckily became neutral and independent from the Soviet Union in 1955. The Americans fought hard for that. It was a financial battle more than other. Right. And it was almost like the Western outpost in the communist world. We're really close to the Iron Curtain.
0: When you look at the map, it it really, Austria does poke into what we think of as Eastern Europe a a long way. So it was kind of touch and go, and and thankfully uh, Austria stayed in the West from an American point of view. And today when we visit Austria, we can really enjoy the heritage of this Habsburg glory that we're talking about. You see it in the palaces.
1: You see it in the palaces. You see all the wealth that the Habsburg family had. It wasn't just palaces. They pretty much owned the land.
0: Yeah. In fact, there's more than one palace. You've got two great palaces in Vienna.
1: There is the Hofburg Palace in right. town, which you don't even recognize as one palace because there are so many architectural styles. It's a big complex, and it was built over 600 years. Uh-huh. So every generation added a wing, another wing, until World War I started. So the Habsburg family was rather optimistic what their future would look like.
0: Because they were doing a lot of grandiose visioning 1914. Uh, they were still in building just
1: before World War I broke out.
0: And then everything stopped.
1: And then everything stopped. So pretty much in 1918, it was over for the Habsburgs. And um, I don't think the Austrians are too nostalgic about the...
0: No. Ruling elite. You know, I think that Austria is unique because they were the big superpower. They were really important, and then they lost the war, and now they seem to be more tuned into what's important in life. Do you think there's anything to that? I mean, Austria feels more relaxed, a long lifespan, beautiful pastries. uh, You know, you can take a stroll any day of the week.
1: It is very relaxing. It's um, I'm not sure what the influence exactly is, but uh-huh. it is uh, a wealthy country, and yeah. it's a very small country, a neutral country, so nobody expects Austria to speak up in big conflicts or take sides. Actually, we're not allowed to take sides. Is that right? Because we're not of in neutrality. The Na- we're not in NATO. We're not allowed to be in NATO.
0: So it really is legally neutral. neutral. That, was, um, that was the agreement with the Soviet Union that in right. holds to this day. Exactly. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Austrian tour guide Andrea Wolf. We're talking about the capital of Austria, Vienna. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Connie is on the line from New Milford in Connecticut. Connie, thanks for your call.
4: My pleasure. I'm so excited that you're speaking about Vienna. Vienna has been in my heart since I was a very little girl. We were living in Germany at the time, and my father was always uh, mentioning the music of Vienna. And when I was five, we traveled to Vienna, and I was able to see the Vienna Boys Choir members get out of their van and go into a concert, which we then heard. So when I was um, a university student in Vienna, I was eager to enjoy all of the music venues that I could, And I very quickly learned about the opportunity for Stehplatz, or standing room only. But when you're a student and you'd like to go into an opera house and enjoy these incredible performances, uh, to be able to go and spend only a few dollars and nearly have to stand for that and enjoy the performances, it's, it's quite a treat. And I just thought that perhaps that's something that Folks might not see in every travel book. Uh, you know, Connie, it's, um, it
0: seems like Vienna is interested in making classical music accessible to students and people without a lot of money. So they have the standing room seats and they have the People's Opera. Yeah. Andrea, do you know that it feels like there's a spirit where we should keep classical music accessible to people? How do you find that in Vienna?
1: Of course. um, The standing room tickets, in fact, were created not so much for tourists. Tourists can also get them, but it's uh, especially for the music students. Mm -hmm. To conclude their curriculum, they have to see so many operas a year. And if you have to see 30 operas a year and you have to pay $200 per performance, you run out of funds very quickly. So um, they have to be cheap. And
0: And you just need to know where to stand at what time and almost always you can get a seat. It's very easy
1: because if it's a popular opera, there's already a line and you have to come a little early. So it has nothing to do with uh, the weekend or the weekday. It's more, if it's Mozart, it will be sold out. If it's uh, Wagner, there's more chances for a standing room ticket. So not all the operas sell out the standing Mm -hmm. room tickets. But it's great that we don't exclude people for financial reasons to enjoy classical music and they want to either learn or just enjoy.
0: Connie, thanks for your call.
1: My pleasure. Thanks,
0: Connie. Bye now. Andrea, this music scene in Vienna is just amazing. Last time I was there, I I realized that they even broadcast on a big screen the opera live for people who are outside sitting on chairs, and they actually put out chairs there so people can enjoy it for free. And then the city hall has a big, giant screen. And that's sort of a festival in the summer, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's um, the screen in front of the city hall is not necessarily opera. It can also be pop music or mm-hmm. uh, more lighter music. It doesn't yeah. have to be opera all the time. It almost becomes like a festival scene because people buy something to drink, something to snack on. Well, there's
0: a food circus out front. Oh, there yeah. must be 40 different uh, little stalls selling a whole array of fun food and drinks.
1: So and... you can actually do more than in the opera. We're not allowed to eat and all drink. The... So you can enjoy your beer and yeah. have some unhealthy snacks.
0: And when we think about Vienna, we also think of there's some classic things that people like to do. There's the boys' choir that Connie mentioned. Uh, There's the wonderful Spanish writing school. Uh, One morning, I actually managed to go to a symphony for a mass at the Augustiner Church, and I got to see the Spanish uh, writing school practice, and I actually got to hear the boys' choir. If you play it right, I mean, that's kind of crazy, but it's all possible on Sunday morning. Tell us about the heritage or or the experience of the, the boys' choir and the Spanish writing school.
1: The Spanish Riding School goes back also to the Habsburg family, of uh-huh. course. They used uh, that special breed of horses, which goes back over 400 years, not for tourist entertainment, but pretty much as a prestige uh, thing. So uh-huh. they're breeding the horses to entertain themselves in huge riding halls inside the palace. That's where they still uh, do their performances. Um, Net
0: that- to in that complex we call the Hofburg. Inside the
1: Hofburg Palace, right. exactly. So mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like there's a riding hall somewhere, but mm-hmm. it's easy to find.
0: It's a five-minute walk from the opera house, and it's a ten-minute walk from the cathedral. It's, everything is in that first district, Everything
1: like. is very close together in Vienna. I think right. that's what distinguishes it the most from Paris or London, that... Within 20 minutes, you are everywhere. Uh, what is interesting for you as a visitor?
0: In fact, you can look at the map, and the, the bullseye would be the cathedral, and then there's a, a, a big circular road that used to be the city wall, and that's the first district, or what do you say, berserk?
1: Yeah, Bezirk.
0: Yeah, and then there's a bunch of districts outside of that. But if you just look at that first district, half of your sightseeing is right there.
1: That's where it's happening, that's right, yeah. and it's all in walking
0: distance. Now, if you want to get away from that First, Berserk, a good idea is to pick up a rental bike. You could go down to the river, the Danube, the beautiful blue Danube.
1: Yeah, you could. I would take the bike to the Danube island where there is no traffic.
0: Beautiful island, a long, skinny island.
1: Where a lot of families go and have their barbecue.
0: And it's a a great way to, to have a sneak peek at the Viennese people enjoying life. Oh, yeah. Austrian tour guide Andrea Wolf is taking us around Vienna right now on Travel with Rick Steves. If you were just going to share one kind of surprise site, what's a fun site that's not the Habsburg Palace that everybody knows to see, but that you think is worth knowing about if you're going to be visiting Vienna?
1: Well, something that has nothing to do with the Habsburg family uh, is possible in Vienna because there is a life after 1918. And we do have modern history as well. And I would suggest to check out the Third Man Museum which is a private museum. It started out as a private collection of items around the movie, The Third Man. So which that's is... kind of a
0: cult following almost. It's a, it's a very um, popular movie today, even though it's black and white and from, what, the 40s. It's by Orson Welles.
1: Orson Welles, 1940s, and it was filmed in bombed-out Vienna. So, so you
0: actually see black and white footage of bombed-out Vienna after World War II.
1: Yeah, and not only from the movie, because that museum also evolves around the time in Vienna when the movie was shot. It's, it's the only museum, really, where you can have a look at the role of Vienna in World War II, which I think is very important, and it's not not shown so much by the official tourism boards of Vienna. In Berlin, you can find that. In Munich, you can find that. In Vienna kind of tries to skip that and focus more on the Habsburg
0: history. The romantic uh, time the romantic of the emperor Habsburg and so on. The Habsburg history. Andrea Wolf, what a privilege for me to sit here with an Austrian guide and, and just think out loud about one of my favorite cities in all of Europe. There's so much to see and do in Vienna. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Andrea Wolf lives in Graz just a couple hours by train from Vienna. You can listen to our prior conversations on Austria in our show archives at ricksteves.com radio. Tips for exploring the Acropolis in Athens are coming up right after we stop over in Bosnia, next on Travel with Rick Steves. Sometimes a multicultural society can be as volatile as tectonic plates. A mere eight years after Sarajevo held the Winter Olympics and showed the world how Muslims, Orthodox, Catholic, Jewish, and non-religious communities could live in harmony, political factions stoked deep-seated ethnic discord. They worked to divide people in the six republics of Yugoslavia as they each fought to become independent nations. But the bloody Bosnian War, many of us remember in horror, ended nearly 30 years ago. To let us know what Bosnia-Herzegovina is offering visitors now as a destination, we're joined by tour guide Sanal Maric. He specializes in guiding visitors to meet the people and visit the attractions in his part of the Balkans. Sanal, thanks for being here. It's great to be here. What an exciting time to live through. I mean, uh, you know, when you were a, a boy, your yeah. country was torn in war, and, and now... Things are, are good. What's new in Bosnia Herzegovina?
2: Well, actually, a lot. We are talking about the country that is now considered to have one of the most complicated political systems in the world. So you can imagine all the layers that are hiding underneath the surface and the name of Bosnia Herzegovina. So, but uh, now, now life is getting better, mm-hmm. you know. And we we have uh, always been a very diverse society, and we are always take a lot of pride in that. And we are when we are talking about. Um, ethnics and different religions. Mm-hmm. We had, uh, from early ages, we had early Christians. Then we have Eastern Orthodox, Muslims, Jews. We, we had actually quite a big population of Jews, especially from the time in Spain uh-huh. expanded. them. they considered Bosnia to be a very liberal and open country, and they settled in. So nowadays, our capital, Sarajevo, is considered to be Jerusalem of Europe because within 200 meters, you can find mosque, church, and synagogue sitting in the same street. Now, part of this would be, for some
0: reason, there's sort of a demographic enclave of Muslim population. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the Ottoman Empire. Is that right? How did the Muslims? this is the, the closest to the center of Europe group yes. of Muslim people. And it's, it's go way back. It's not modern refugees, but it's there for centuries and centuries. We are Central Europe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm thinking. Thank you very much. Yes. that's a problem yes. that Americans like yes, me have. Yes. We think of France think as of Central as,
2: as uh, Eastern Europe. We are right. actually Central Europe, and uh, with the arrivals of Ottomans in the early 1400s, and uh, it took them some time to, to you know, invade the lane. Mm-hmm. It, it's not that big of a land. It's like
0: oh, so this was when the Ottomans were actually attacking Vienna. Yes. is that when yes. they came? No,
2: they actually made a quite an important base mm-hmm. in, in Bosnia. The, the, the historic importance is they have split the areas that were conquered into al- um, allies, like the small areas that are easily to govern. Mm-hmm. But they haven't done this with Bosnia. The entire country stayed within the Ottoman Empire as one whole. And we were the westernist outposts of the Ottoman Empire. Okay,
0: and the Ottoman Empire was Muslim. Yeah. Okay, so today in Bosnia and Herzegovina, would you say the three big ethnic or religious groups would be Muslim, Bosniaks, Eastern Orthodox Serbs, and Catholic Croats? Yes. Okay, so that's part of the mix. What's the difference between Bosnia and Herzegovina? Is it one country or
2: two countries? Or it, it, that, That's interesting because that Bosnia-Herzegovina name comes in the late 19th century from the early times when, when Bosnia was first mentioned, sometimes in 1800s, it was just Bosnia. The name comes from the river that goes in the Sarajevo region, but now with uh, arising as a kingdom in the early mid-ages, Bosnia had a, one, a very important ruler from that area that was called Humina, or Hum, which is Herzegovina today. And he got a title Herzog, which is in German, okay. Duke.
0: Okay. so and that was they loved
2: like the... it so much, and they call it the land of Herzog, or as we say, Herzegovina. And there you have it. But there is not a single line that you can say where Herzegovina and Bosnia starts, it's just the southern part of the country closest to Adriatic. So you live in Herzegovina? I I do live. I'm very close to Mostar. And if I refer to your country as Bosnia, uh, that's a problem for you? No, when we are outside, we are kind of go under the same shell. But within the country, there is always this north-south situation, and we like to be preferred, like, I'm Herzegovina. Well, that's good for us
0: travelers to know. Hey, Sanal, how is tourism now? Because I know People were afraid because of the war, but that was a long time ago. There are so many travelers in Dubrovnik, and Mostar, the most interesting place in Bosnia, in my, in mm-hmm. my estimate, is just two hours or so away. Well,
2: it's blossoming. Tourism is kind of a spreading everywhere, and it is an, a very important branch of our economy, and we are trying to put it on a very stable foundation. And giving the very close area to the Croatian coast, split Mostar, and we are kind of uh, there – and people love to go there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sano Maric, and he's from Herzegovina,
0: our Bosnia-Herzegovina. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and David's calling in from Seattle. David, do you have any thoughts on Bosnia-Herzegovina?
4: Yes, thanks, Rick, and thanks, Sano, for uh, the opportunity. Um, we were privileged enough to have Sano as a local guide, and I wondered if you, Sano, could talk about how uh, education is helping to overcome the divisions between children of different faiths and cultures
0: in Bosnia post war. So that is interesting because you have this heritage of uh, sectarian struggles and Muslim families and Orthodox families and Catholic families all literally killing each other one generation later going to school yeah. together.
2: It is uh, still quite of a burning question in our society because we unfortunately still function giving where you live in Bosnia And uh, whether you're following uh, Bosnian curriculum, Croatian, or Serbian. Because when we talk about the language as one bonding unit of the nation, we all perfectly understand each other. It's just about the thought how you name your language. What are the three languages? Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian. So these are three different languages that are
0: really essentially all the
2: same. All the same. Depending on your family's heritage. Slavic roots that we all share there. So it's pretty much just a slight, you can call it dialect. Do the children go to a, a Muslim school or a, a Catholic school? There are no, not so many Muslims or Catholics. We have a public schools. But the right. problem is, especially in my hometown, which a lot of people who are traveling with us, that we are making a stop there, and I really like to take them there to show them. We still have this one of the few schools that's kind of a segregated because it is physically separated Bosnian Muslims from the Catholics. One are going to one entrance, the other are going to, to second. And I'm very active there uh, in our local community, working for a nonprofit, And we are putting a lot of efforts to work with kids to meet these two ends. And we are started a daily care center where we have all the kids from both schools coming. And we are trying just the, the thing is parents, because when they say it's enough, we will have one school. It's simple as that. So, David, that sounds hopeful.
4: Yes, it does, and uh, we were witness to what you're working on funnel in this town of in your town. very uh, impressed. uh keep up the good work,
0: thank you, thanks for your call, David. Nicole's calling in from Victoria in British Columbia. Nicole, have you been oh. to uh, Bosnia Herzegovina?
4: No, I haven't, but it sounds sounds like a great place to
0: visit. yeah, what are you wondering about?
4: I was wondering about the um tunnel of hope. I've heard that's a um a place in Sarajevo, Sarajevo and was wondering what is it about and if Ah, uh, Senel recommends visiting
2: it. Definitely. It, it is uh, one of the things that you cannot miss in Sarajevo. It is um now turned into a museum. It starts with um a family house because uh, during the war it was the best kept secret because that was the 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 breathing straw of entire Sarajevo during the siege and they have managed to dig entire tunnel. So wait a, on, a minute, the breathing straw. So yeah. that was what kept the people alive basically. Yeah, because Everything that went in and out of Sarajevo went through the tunnel. Through this tunnel? Yeah. So the tunnel of life? We're talking about a very tiny tunnel. (laughs) When you go through, you have to really duck to to walk, and it was dark, and they dug it under the airport. So this was Sarajevo was sieged. Yes. Food and water could not get
0: in, could not get out. Who was inside, and who was outside?
2: Well, outside on on the outskirts of Sarajevo, on the hill, which is really hilly there, we had Olympics in uh, 84. it was uh, Serbs, Serbs, Bosnian Serbs, yeah, who were who are having problems when Bosnia declared independence from Yugoslavia. They didn't want to break out. So they wanted to stay with they Serbia. They wanted to because, stay with Serbia
0: because uh, they were the Serbian part of Bosnia and they yes. thought it would be better for their ethnic group to be part of Serbia yes. whereas the non-Serbian Bosnians wanted to break away and start their independent country.
2: That is a, but it's very complex situation. We had like thousands of Serbs staying in Sarajevo fighting those Serbs. Oh, what a complicated situation. Yeah, how, how long was this uh, siege?
0: Almost 4 years. 4 years and this tunnel of hope today is sort of a monument to that struggle. It
2: is. It is uh, set up as a museum. People Mm -hmm. go and visit because it is something that kept Sarajevo alive. Nicole from Victoria, you know,
0: there are so many heart-wrenching and inspirational memorials and and, uh, sites related to the tragic war that uh, Bosnia has has lived through. And when we go there, this is an important part of your uh, itinerary.
4: That's right. Thank you.
0: Thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sano Maric, and we're talking about Bosnia-Herzegovina. Sano is a guide there. You know, Sano, one of the biggest attractions uh, for a lot of people is Metagorgia. It's a very, very popular pilgrimage destination for Roman Catholics. What is Metagorgia, and how is it doing lately?
2: Well, um, it's our latest estimates. It has, like, almost a million and a half visitors, and we are talking about something that was a very small village, up to 500 people living there like 40 years ago. Now, uh, what's fascinating, when you go there, you can hear all the languages of the world, and uh, people love to go there because uh, the the story goes 30-some years ago, uh, four kids have come to uh, say that they have witnessed appearance of Holy Mary on the hill and that she talked to them. So that's like Fatima in Portugal. It's Pretty one of much, these kind yes, of places. Yes. So they
0: had this... Uh, Abarition, I think it's called. Yes. And uh, the kids reported that they talked with the Virgin Mary. And since then, you said a million and a half people have come. Annually. Annually to yes. this little village. Yes. When I was there, there was just cinder blocks everywhere. They were planning on building more and more infrastructure to handle the crowds now, and pilgrims. Now it is
2: growing very fast. It's mm-hmm. almost as a full-time city there. So that's
0: Medagordia. And that's a, a unique kind of tourism, pilgrimage tourism. In our last few minutes, I'd like to talk about Mostar and Sarajevo, and then I'd like to go to dinner with you and talk about food in Bosnia. Oh, yeah. Uh, in Mostar, that's uh, the city that really is uh, infamous as a, t- a city that was ripped apart, also was Sarajevo, by the war, mm-hmm. and now it's come together. There's that famous bridge with the uh, pointed arch gracefully going over the uh, river. Red yes. Uh, what does that bridge mean to the people of Bosnia, and what happened
2: there? A lot. Uh, I mean, it is a meeting point, where they have poets. I'm not that poetic myself, but I love to read poetry. They have wrote uh, thousands of songs about how banks of Neretva kiss each other over the old bridge and how gracefully it stood there. But unfortunately, in the last war, it was, um, we like to say, shoot down like a person because this is what Mo- old bridge feels to most our people. It is the sole representative of the entire town. And it's managed to, to stay there for 500 years until it was set to the sit on the bank of the mm. Neretva River. So, so you have
0: this venerable, beloved bridge, yes. and it was pummeled by our artillery yes. until it, finally the rocks fell into the river. And I was in a theater in Mostar once, the little tourist theater mm-hmm. that shows the history of the war and everything. And the theater was filled with former Yugoslavians, people from around, around Bosnia. Yeah. And everybody was watching, and the bombs hit, and the bombs hit, and finally that bridge crumbled into the river. And you could feel the, the sadness, like somebody had just died.
2: I think the feeling was like you had just lost your family member when the bridge went down. And now the bridge is rebuilt.
0: Also, when you stand on the top of the bridge, you look around and you see an interesting skyline of crosses, church buyers, and minarets. What do you think now when you look around your
2: city and you see the crosses, church
0: buyers, and the minarets?
2: Well... This is the thing when you're growing up in in our country, it's kind of a normal thing Mm -hmm. to be surrounded by all this. And the thing is, uh, we just need to be reminded of how easily life can be normal and how well we lived Mm -hmm. just before the war. And if you go for two hours on the road, you get up to Sarajevo. And Sarajevo,
0: we know because that's where the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated in 1914, which helped kick off World War I. Uh, Sarajevo also suffered greatly in the recent war. It's a city of about, what, 300,000 people, beautiful Ottoman-style old town. When you take a group to Sarajevo, Sano, yes. what is your mission as a tour guide? What do you show them? What do people find most interesting?
2: It- Actually, it depends with what kind of appetite they, they, they came. But you cannot dodge the war team when you are there, especially with what's happening in Sarajevo and with the siege of Sarajevo, which mm-hmm. is one of the longest in history of wars. And But Sarajevo has such a beautiful story. And one of the beautiful parts of Sarajevo is food. The food? Yes. So they have a big market hall there. They have amazing market and the food is literally everything and all the great smells of coffee, tea and homemade food, is just filling the street, and you cannot resist to jump into the next restaurant and have a great meal. If you took me into the market hall,
0: what are some of the smells and the, the delightful things to taste that I might see? Uh, what might we put in a picnic if we were going to go shopping at the market?
2: Okay, so the thing that we are having heavy on the meat, especially with cevapčići, Cevapcici, what is that? That is a, almost like a little sausage. It's made of a mixed meat, and it is grilled. It is Bosnian favorite food. And it are there different ones pa- for
0: each region, or is it just the basic we, cevapcici?
2: There is basic cevapcici, but everybody claims, because you add some you know, spices to it to make it like this or that, but bottom line is... It is the same, but everybody claims that they have the original, the best tasting Chichi, and they try to convince you that there is the best one. So, as travelers, we'll have that on our list:
0: chavapchichi. It's the minced meat grilled on a skewer, and there's a sauce that comes with yes. that That's very yes. important, I
2: think. Yeah, it is. And what is the uh, burek? Is another. Uh, pop- oh yeah, popier. it is, and you make me homesick now. So burek, I love burek. We have all these kind of pies, and burek is a meat pie. Zeljanica is a spinach pie, sirnica is a cheese pie, and uh, the only thing, we have a joke that goes like you cannot upset Bosnian with politics or anything, but but when you call any pie burek, they're going to go crazy. So there's only, there's a correct burek. <laughs> there is a correct And you buruk. must respect that. Yes, and, and when our neighbors from Croatia come and they say, can I have burek with cheese? Do you know what they're going to do? They're going to make a burek and put a slice of cheese on top of it. There you go. <laughs> uh, it's a travesty. <laughs> uh, we've been talking
0: with Sanal Maric, and Sanal is from Bosnia-Herzegovina. Sanal, you're traveling around the United States now, but when you get home, and you go to a coffee shop and you have a Bosnian coffee. Mm-hmm. I understand it's a drink, but it's also a ritual. Tell us about it is. when you get home, just to finish your conversation, take me with you and what will it be like for
2: you to have a Bosnian coffee? First of all, we have this luxury called time. And uh, we like to invest a lot of our time in this little ritual called coffee. You can sit over coffee for two hours. And we are not drinking this huge, big Americano. You know, it's like almost two shots of coffee in a small thing called filjan that we have. And it's kind of a based on a Turkish coffee well, 500 years after. Of course, we can adapt it, and it's, we call it Bosnian coffee, and it's really good, similar to Italian espresso. And this is the best excuse to have a great time with your friends. You can just simply sit there, talk about whatever comes to your mind. And now when I return home, it's going to be mostly talk about me being talking about what I saw and what I experienced being here because none of my friends have traveled here, so I'm going to be a very popular home. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You'll have some interesting stories yes. about your adventure yes. in the United States and when uh, United States travelers get to go to former Yugoslavia, I hope they make Bosnia-Herzegovina stop on their route. Me too. How do you say thank you very much and happy travels? Hvala <laughs> put. All right, sano. Thank you very much and happy journey. Thank you. Sanal Maric is a language professor and a tour guide who lives in Stolaj, just under an hour's drive south of Mostar. We have a link to his Facebook page in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, a local guide helps us follow the route of an ancient procession that's wound its way through Athens for more than 2,000 years up to the temples on the hilltop fortress of the Acropolis.
4: Hello, everybody. My name is Anastasia Gaetano. I'm Greek. I'm from the beautiful city of Thessaloniki in the north of Greece, and I've got a little tongue twister for you today. In Greek, of course. Aspri Petra Xexas, prey Kepdonilio which means a white stone is very white, and from the sun it gets even whiter. Aspri Petra xexaspri, Keptonilio xexasprote. Hope it was fun.
0: Even in this age of superlatives, it's hard to overstate the historic and artistic importance of the Acropolis. Crowned by the mighty Parthenon, the Acropolis, or high city, rises above the sprawl of modern Athens. It's a lasting testament to ancient Athens' glorious golden age in the 5th century B.C. And hiking through the Propylaea Gate and you ogle at the famous caryatid statues at the Erechtheion, and you admire the perfect proportions of the Parthenon, climbing the Acropolis Hill and, and rambling through its ruins, you'll either feel hot and tired and confused, or you'll feel like you've just journeyed back in time to the birthplace of Western civilization. It kind of depends on how much you understand what you're looking at. And to better appreciate that, we're joined now from Athens by a guide who's taken countless visiting Americans to that fabled perch, Effie Perperi. Effie, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you for the invitation, Rick.
0: It was fun to try to um, introduce the importance of the Acropolis, and I probably (laughs) mispronounced a few of those Greek words, but the point is... The Acropolis is all about that sacred ritual, isn't it? And, and we can approach it almost like it's 2,500 years ago.
3: Well, for us, the Athenians, you know, we take it for granted that it's been there forever. And to be honest, thanks to all the people that get there, we have the opportunity to get this feeling again and again and again and to thank Pericles for what he's done like 2,500 years ago, huh?
0: So who is Pericles?
3: Pericles, uh, he was the general of Athens. He was the one that decided to actually rebuild the Acropolis after the Persian invasion in the 5th century BC. Uh So uh, he is the reason why I have a job today.
0: (laughs) Ah, that's so true. That's the reason we go to Athens, I think.
3: He made the best investment.
0: So the the big deal for me, the challenge for me, is to understand the Pantheatic... What is it called, the Pantheatic way?
3: Panathenaic way. The panathiaic
0: way. way. Yeah. And that's, um, it's, of course, depicted in the famous marbles from the Parthenon that everybody sees and, and and remembers. I'd like for you to pretend that you and I, we've snuck into the parade. It's 2,400 years ago. It's 400 B.C., and we're actually in the parade. They didn't notice it, but I've just got me and my favorite tour guide, <laughs> and uh, we're wearing a, a mask or a, a the right <laughs> kind of robe. What are we going to do? Where are we going to walk? What are we going to smell? What's exciting? What's going on?
3: First of all, it's a very long hike. It's not just uh, what you see on the Acropolis. Everybody had to meet together at the main gate of Athens, which was called the Dipylon Gate. And then they would go through what we call today the ancient Agora, the ancient city. After they walked for a while, they passed right in front of the Stoa of Attalus, which is a very big and monumental building That would be the point where the real hike started to the foothills of the Acropolis. Mm -hmm. So whoever wanted to drop off and wanted to stay, they could stay there. Or they had to continue till the end of this hike. Well, along the way, people had to leave their offerings to sacrifice a goat or a a pig or even a cow, if they could afford it. There would be musicians playing music. And at the end uh, of this uh, hike, you would reach the Parthenon. That was your destination.
0: So, and you would wind up just like tourists do today. There's sort of a exactly. zigzag path up mm-hmm. the mountain. And then there's a, not much is left of the Grand Entryway. But if you no. know it's the Grand Entryway, you can kind of imagine this is the the big door to, the, to, to Oz almost, you know. And you, you walk through that and you're in a... Today you have these very shiny, polished stones that are baking under the sun. You've got a vast view of all of the city, all the way to the sea. Ahead of you is a commotion of temples. And what's the activity? What, what is the purpose of the procession? What are, where are we going and why?
3: Well, as I said, the last uh, stop is the Parthenon. So the purpose of uh, visiting the Acropolis is to worship goddess Athena, which is the protectors of the city. To make sure that you leave a little something to her, so she takes care of you, she protects you, and they would meet the priests and the priestesses, uh, having all these uh, sacrifices that I've mentioned. And of course, at the end of the day, they would all share the meat of the sacrificed animals.
0: That's what I've learned. I learned that also in the great Greek temples in Sicily and in southern Italy. Which, by the way, if you like Greek temples and you're not able to get to Greece, you got wonderful Greek ruins. Yeah, well, in southern best Italy. Kept. And you've got this uh, tradition where they would, they would sacrifice all of these animals and then everybody would eat. It'd be a big feast. And I, I always thought, well, that's a good way to get a good turnout. Uh, a lot of people to come to the religious festival is, is offer a big it's kind a of motivation. a big
3: barbecue. Yes, uh, yes. it gives them the motivation. <laughs> good food, good wine, and it's a meeting point. It's right. a very good opportunity to mingle with people, to get to see people that you haven't seen for a while, and to see and to be seen as well.
0: In our understanding of temples, we always think a place of worship is like a church or a synagogue or a mosque, and that contains a group of worshipers. People gather together, but in a temple, the, really the, the public focus is on the exterior, and the, the religious heavy lifting is inside, but that's only done by the priests. Is that correct?
3: Yes, of course, everybody was allowed to go and worship the statue of Athena, but the only one that would be involved in all these sacrifices, it would be authorized people, it would be priests and priestesses. And they were in charge of the religious part. Yeah. Uh, the people had to join, you know, they had to make sure that they are present. Sure. And the rest would be done by the priests.
0: Okay, but people would gather and they would gaze up at this statue of Athena. I understand she had a shiny tip of her spear that could be seen like 30 miles away out at sea by people in boats.
3: That's the statue, which was right outside the Parthenon. Uh, As soon as when you got up to the Acropolis, you pass from uh, a very monumental gate, very impressive one, which is called the Propylaea. It always gives the false impression that it's a temple. And you're, okay, I just made it to the Parthenon but no you're not there yet right. so right after you pass this gate then you see the statue which was made out of bronze and the tip of the spear the helmet and the shield were gold-plated and they were so shiny and polished that could be seen from such a long distance
0: oh my goodness that it must especially in a, in the mindset of somebody from 400 bc it, this must have just been awe inspiring uh, how many years did this procession happened? Was it just a, a short period of time or did it go for centuries?
3: It went on for centuries, from the 5th century BC till uh, about the Roman times, right. although the Romans had adopted the Greek uh, religion of the 12 Olympian gods, but then they started making a lot of fun of it. So mm. it lost its spirit. It mm. wasn't as religious anymore. So little by little, at the late Roman times it started declining. And of course, in the early Christian times, they've stopped everything.
0: And then finally somebody just declared that's the end of pagan worship when that was toward the end of the Roman Empire and then all of the temples were decommissioned as pagan places of worship and many of them became Christian places of worship the the Parthenon itself has has done its time as a Christian church and a Muslim mosque as well as a pagan temple right
3: Indeed yes it's like one temple that represents three different completely different religions
0: hmm.
2: Wow. started
3: with uh, what they call paganism, but it was uh, the 12 Olympian gods, the Pantheon, and then we have uh, Christianity, and of course, it functioned as a mosque.
0: And today it's a tourist attraction. <laughs> it, t- today
3: it's a tourist attraction, yes, wow. <laughs> it's a multi-ethnic uh, highlight.
0: This is travel with Rick Steves, and today we're joined on the line from Greece by Athens tour guide Effie Pepperi. And with Effie's help, we're sorting out the wonders of the Acropolis. You know, Effie, when I think of the Acropolis, we often think of the famous metopes and carved panels that are such cultural treasures and how in about the year 1801, uh, when what Greece was run by the Ottomans, it was part of the Ottoman Empire, the Ottomans gave the English Lord Elgin permission to take home the best of the reliefs. So for over 200 years, the best of the Parthenon has been in London in the British Museum. And, you know, the English could say, well, the Ottomans said you can have it, and Lord Elgin took them here. And the English could say they would have been uh, destroyed in other wars or they would have been melted down or they would have been uh, dissolved by the acidic air and we put them in a safe place in London and, and we, we paid for them and they're ours. But, of course, uh, the Greeks would say, wait a minute, this is part of our heritage and they belong in Athens. What is the latest on that controversy of the what's called the Elgin marbles?
3: You know, this is like a never-ending story, which breaks our hearts every time we visit the the Acropolis Museum, and we're guiding people, and we're talking about this, and people can see the replicas that represent Mm -hmm. all these original panels, which are located in the British Museum. It makes people wonder, how come, you know, after so many years that uh, Greece is not occupied anymore by the Ottoman Turks, uh, why London is not returning all that? Well, I have good news because two places, not England, uh, have decided to return some of the pieces which were stolen years and years ago. The first place was Palermo.
0: So, Palermo Uh, in Sicily, Sicily, they have one of the reliefs or one of the panels and they're sending it home?
3: They send it already. They send it for a few months as a loan and -hmm. it was supposed to return. And then they said, no, this belongs to you. You should keep it. It's not a big deal. It's a small piece. But it was something that made us feel that, okay, somebody is finally understanding our issue here. Yeah. Then Vatican responded because Vatican as well, you know, the state of Vatican, Pope. Right, yeah. They had also a few fragments from the Acropolis. So they decided to send us back what they have taken many years ago. How it ended up in Vatican, we have no idea. Mm -hmm. So this was a very good opportunity for Greece to start putting more pressure towards yeah. the British Museum. You know, with Brexit and the Grexit all these years, we couldn't make a proper conversation. Right. But I think this is the beginning.
0: But now Athens has built an amazing state-of-the-art museum, the Acropolis Museum, which is just at the base of the Acropolis. And it's uh, on the top of the museum. There's a, the exact size of the floor plan situated the same way, facing the same direction and so on, where you've rebuilt inside out of the acidic air a model of the uh, Parthenon, and all of the existing panels are safely there, and there are empty spots that are quite obviously empty and waiting for London to give back these treasures that are now prepared to receive the bits of the Parthenon from London and to protect it and get rid of London's complaint that it wouldn't be safe to send them back. <laughs> so uh, there, But but there is, in defense of uh, the museum in London, if they give back the Parthenon panels, then every museum around the world, all of the treasures in those museums will probably need to be sent back to their homes, and it'll create a whole avalanche of movement of art and, and uh, treasures that have long been in the colonial capitals going back to the places they were plundered from, and they don't want that to happen, and it'll be very interesting to see what happens. I do know that in London, they told me it's no longer the Elgin Marbles. We're now calling them the Parthenon Marbles, kind Mm -hmm. of an admission that the Elgin Marbles had so much bad feelings about it that they better change the name.
3: Yes, you're right. Uh, It was uh, a surprise to us, first, that they changed the name of the room, And to be honest, something that has not been heard, they always claim that we got permission from the Turks at that time, you know, that Lord Elgin was allowed to take them. You know, Turkey responded to them, you know what, we never gave you this permission. So the documents that you have, they're either fake or God knows uh, who made this. And they're like, do not get us involved in this story. We never gave you the permission.
0: (laughs) It's such a complicated history in that corner of the Mediterranean, that's for sure. The Limestone Bluff, known as the Acropolis, has been the heart of Athens and Greek civilization since before recorded time. Effie Peppery is our guide to its sights and history right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You'll find a link to Effie's Facebook page in today's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Effie, when we're thinking about the Acropolis and the remarkable temples there... I just want to take a moment to talk about the sophisticated, organic, amazingly complicated design of the Parthenon implemented in stone 2,400 years ago or so. Um, there's no straight lines in the Parthenon, are they? Everything is is designed to kind of be almost organic. Can you explain that?
3: Well, uh, Pericles, first of all, he assigned uh, two very special architects to design the Acropolis. That was Ictinus and Callicrates, And they knew that there is no perfection in life, in real life, that there is no straight line. And that's why they created the floor of the Parthenon, even the ceiling of the Parthenon that way, to create like an optical illusion, Mm -hmm. like uh, to change what we think that it's right, like the floor that it should be perfectly flat. Mm -hmm. Instead, they created a little curve and that is for many different reasons. It makes the Parthenon look bigger. It makes it look like it's moving, like it's breathing. And when you look at this building from a distance, it looks perfect. Yeah. So it fixes what your eye cannot see. In okay, a way. so
0: the, the illusion of a, if you look at a straight line from a distance, it sags down. So knowing that they bent the line up a little bit, So each of the straight steps arc up in the middle a little bit so that when you look at it, it overcomes the illusion and it does look straight even though it's not?
3: Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. I like the fact that also the weight of the stone roof pushes down on the columns and they bulge a little bit as if they're being pushed down, and that's also calculated in there to give it that organic feel.
3: They call this endases. That means that uh, you believe that the columns should go from the bottom to the top, like uh, it would be thicker at the bottom, thinner at the top, but about three quarters from uh, from the bottom to the top, it recurs a thickness again, so uh-huh. it makes like there is pressure from the roof.
0: So there's all of that celebration that we don't even fully appreciate, that we we enjoy subconsciously as we climb that that ancient way. We get to that shiny rock on top of Athens. We can stand on that perch and we can look out And if I understand correctly, there's 10 million people in Greece, 4 million people in Athens. We can see 4 out of every 10 Greeks from that perch, and that has been the perch that has shined over Athens from deep into ancient times. And there are so many slices of Greek history that happened there. Effie, it's such a delight talking with you. If you could just finish by just illustrating another slice of the story of the Acropolis And that's back from 1941. Uh, And there's a a flag that flies over the Acropolis. And I think when Athenians look at that flag, they often think of the heroic resistance martyr that really did something astounding in his fight against the Nazis. What happened in 1941?
3: So during World War II, uh, when the Germans uh, took over the city, there was a flag flying at the Acropolis and there was a, a Greek guard that he was forced by the Germans, by the Nazis, to remove the Greek flag and, of course, to put up the Nazi's flag. The first thing he did was to wrap this flag with his body and he fell off the cliff. He committed suicide because he thought that he is uh, uh, betraying his country. So during that day, the people could see the Nazi's flag flying all over the city. And there were two other men, Glezos and Sandas were the names, that decided over the night to climb to the Acropolis under the nose of the Germans and to change one more time the flag, removing the Nazi flag and raising the Greek flag again. Hmm. So that was the night when uh, the um, Athenians, they saw that they're not going to give in, that they're going to resist, that um, this is the beginning of the resistance. So in other countries, you know, they celebrate the end of the war, we are celebrating the beginning of the resistance as far as uh, Athens' history, you know, World War II. Wow.
0: And that is just in living memory of, of some people even today. And it's a reminder of the importance of the Acropolis for the soul of the Greek people. Effie Peppery, thank you so much for joining us and you've inspired me to want to go back to the Acropolis and appreciate it even more. How do we say thank you?
3: E F Eferisto.
0: Parakalo.
3: thank you. Thank you.
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tappen. Our associate producers are Kaz hall and Donna Bardsley. Website uploads are by Andrew Wakeling and Sherry Quirt. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Find out when other radio stations air Travel with Rick Steves. You can find a list of our affiliates at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.